Volume 1, Chapter 10, Part 1 of A Popular History of England, From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording done by Voice of Landis in Zanesville, Ohio. You can find me at VoiceofLandis.com. A Popular History of England, From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria, by Francois-Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 10, Part 1. Maes Scotorum. Edward I, 1272 to 1307. Edward II, 1307 to 1327. The English fleet was speeding towards the coast of Tunis, to which place the policy of Charles of Anjou had taken Louis IX. Prince Edward was already rejoicing at the idea of going back to his uncle to gain instruction in Christian chivalry. But with the land appearing in the horizon when approaching the port, the French vessels were seen in mourning, the flag being at half-mast. A feeling of uneasiness spread through the fleet. A little bark put out from shore. She came alongside the prince's vessel. "'The holy king is dead,' said the sailors, and they burst into tears. Prince Edward was in despair. He landed, but an imagination seemed to be walking among ghosts. The French soldiers, discouraged, sick, and disheartened, resolved to give up an enterprise the commencement of which had been so disastrous. The young king of France, Philip the Bold, urged Prince Edward to return like himself to his country. But Edward was inflexible. "'I would go,' said he, "'even had I only with me Torvac my equerry. As far as Trapani in Sicily, he accompanied the funeral procession of King Philip, bearing the coffins of his father and brother. When he reached France, the unfortunate young monarch had added to these the beers of his wife, his sister, and his brother-in-law, the King of Navarre. Prince Edward left Sicily in the spring of 1271, making sail towards Acre, the only place which still remained in the hands of the Christians. He commanded a small band of troops, and the European knights who were in Palestine did not respond very readily to his appeal. An attack on Nazareth, followed by the massacre of the Muslim garrison, and the repair of the walls round Acre was the result of the Seventh Crusade. When Edward himself nearly fell a victim, he was in his camp, on the Friday after Whit Sunday, towards the time of Vespers, overcome by the heat. He was resting upon a couch when a messenger from the emir of Jaffa presented himself at the door of the tent. He was in frequent communication with the prince and was therefore allowed to enter. The Arab presented his papers, then suddenly, drawing a dagger from his long sleeve, he stabbed the prince in the region of his heart. Edward sprang up from his couch and, knocking down the assassin, fractured his skull with a stool. Then, Repressing with a sign the violence of his attendants, who had appeared on hearing the commotion and who were mutilating the assassin's body, "'Of what use is it?' he asked, "'to strike a dead man.' The prince's wound was slight, but the idea of poison presented itself to everybody's mind. The Spanish legend relates that Eleanor of Castile kneeled down before her husband and, applying her lips to the wound, sucked the poison from the wound." This noble instance of conjugal love is disbelieved, however, by some historians. An English surgeon was called who commenced a cruel operation. Eleanor was very pale, and her brother-in-law dragged her out of the tent. She struggled with him, weeping all the while. "'It is better that you should cry,' he said abruptly, "'than that all England should be in mourning.' Edward's wound was soon healed. 
as soon as his wife had recovered after the birth of a little girl called Joan of Acre, in token of her birthplace. The English troops set sail again, promising themselves, as King Richard had done, to come back to the Holy Land with larger forces. But the ardor for the Crusades had died out. St. Louis and Prince Edward of England were the last Crusaders, and 18 years later, in 1291, the last remains of Christian power in the East disappeared in its turn. Acre was retaken by the Templars by the Sultan Keladine. The Holy Sepulchre thenceforth remained in the hands of the infidels. Prince Edward passed through Italy and paid a visit at Rome to Pope Gregory X. Formerly Archdeacon of Liege, a friend of the prince, and while with him, received tidings of the death of the king his father. The grief which this loss caused him was so violent that Charles of Anjou was astonished. A throne would readily have consoled him for the death of the weak Henry of Winchester. You lost two children, he remarked, without displaying as much grief. The Lord who gave me my children can give me others, rejoined Edward. But who can give me back a father? The new king was in no hurry to return to his kingdom. He stayed in Italy to obtain justice for the murder of Henry of Almagne. But Simon of Montfort was already dead, and Guy was subjected only to a term of imprisonment, but contrived to elude his jailers. Edward then proceeded to France to do homage for Guyenne to King Philip the Bold. He at the same time visited his possessions, being apprehensive, no doubt, that some plot might be on foot to deprive him of them. On his return, he was challenged to single combat in a tournament by the Count of Chalon. Edward was warned by the Pope that the nobleman sought his life. He was by nature distrustful, and when he saw at Chalon a larger number of knights than he possessed himself, his suspicions were aroused, and the tournament became a battle. The English gained the victory. The Count of Chalon himself was for a moment in danger. Edward compelling him to save his life by surrendering to a mere man-at-arms. On the 2nd of August, 1274, the King of England at length landed at Dover, and on the 19th of the same month was crowned at Westminster. To the great delight of the people, the nation was proud of its young king, of his reputation for courage and virtue, of his exploits and perils in the Holy Land. His reign commenced under happy auspices, the Jews alone disliked the ascension of a prince so renowned for his austere piety and for his zeal against the infidels. Their instinct had not deceived them. Edward was always violently hostile to them, and one of the first acts of his government on his return from the crusade was to hang all the Jews who were in possession of sweated coin. More than 200 of them perished in London alone for this offense, common among both the Jews and the Christians. It was but the beginning of their grievances. Persecuted, plundered, imprisoned, the unlucky Israelites were finally banished from the country in 1290, and all the property which they were obliged to leave behind them was confiscated. While the king was hanging the Jews, he was also instituting a commission instructed to inquire the state of landed property in the kingdom, in order to put to a test the title deeds of the Christians. When proofs were wanting, the king exacted a fine before granting fresh letters patent. But this useful device was not always practicable. When Earl Warren was called upon to produce his documents, he drew his sword. That is the title by which I hold my lands, he said, and that will suffice me to defend them. Our fathers, who came over with William the Bastard, acquired the land with their good lances. 
He did not conquer the country unassisted, and he was supported by others, and his supporters shared the spoil with him. The Earl's title deeds were deemed sufficient. The prosperity of England was great at the time. Several years of rest had allowed its commerce to develop itself. The king respected the charters in all important particulars. His zealous judicial administration had diminished the number of robbers who infested the highways, and it secured the integrity of the magistrates, and in consequence he was popular amongst his subjects. But this peaceful glory did not suffice for Edward I. As ambitious as his ancestors, he had a desire to make conquests in other quarters. Instead of looking with an envious eye on the continent, he had conceived the project of subjecting the whole of Great Britain to his dominion. Scotland was far off, and he could find no pretext for declaring war in that direction. Wales had never recognized anything but a partial authority of the kings of England, and the reigning Prince Llewellyn had neglected to do homage to Edward I on his accession to the throne. It was in this direction, then, that the king turned his attention. He advanced toward the frontiers of Wales towards the end of the year 1276. All attempts at negotiation failed, and Llewellyn was declared a rebel in that part of the year when the snow was beginning to cover the mountains. The war could not possibly begin for several months. Edward, however, did not lose time. David, the younger brother of Llewellyn, had been deprived by the latter of all his property. The King of England conferred many favors upon him, and the prince, out of gratitude, summoned all his partisans under the standard of England. Hostilities began in the summer. Edward entered the enemy's territory, while his fleet took possession of the Isle of Anglesey, and driving Llewellyn from castle to castle, from retreat to retreat, he reduced him in a short time to famine in the depths of the forests. The Welsh prince was obliged to surrender, hard as were the conditions which were imposed upon him. But Edward was generous, although severe. He remitted his demands one by one, and ended by consenting to the marriage of Llewellyn with Eleanor of Montfort, daughter of the Earl of Leicester. She had for some time been affianced to him and had been captured at sea in the preceding year, when she was proceeding to Wales. David had received a large gift of property. Edward withdrew his armies, leaving in Wales only some soldiers in the castles, and the Chief Justice, Roger Clifford, who was entrusted with the government of the new conquest. The King of England had not taken into account the patriotic spirit which endeared their national independence to the Welsh people. In vain had he raised David to the rank of Earl. In vain had he given him an English wife, as soon as the Welsh prince found himself in his mountains again. He remembered only that his country was formerly free and that he had contributed towards reducing it to subjection. The civil and military measures ordained by Edward were obnoxious to the people. The highways which were opened up across forests, the executions of criminals, which had been formerly punished by fines, according to the Welsh laws, the encroachments of the king's officers upon the rights of the Welsh nobility, so many grievances easily furnished pretext for David's new resolve. He persuaded his brother to break all his engagements with Edward. An old prophecy of Merlin began to circulate again throughout the mountains. It was to the effect that the Prince of Wales would be crowned in London when the money in that town should be round. It was rumored in Wales that it was forbidden to cut in halves the new coin which had recently been struck in England, as had hitherto been the practice. The day of victory seemed at length to have arrived. 
It was on Palm Sunday, 1282. Dark night had come on, and a violent storm was raging in the forests. David suddenly attacked Howarden Castle, where the chief justice here resided. The latter was seized in his bed, wounded, and dragged into the mountains. All the country rose. Llewellyn joined his brother and laid siege to the castles of Flint and Rhode Island. The English settlers were everywhere murdered. All Wales was up in arms when tidings of the insurrection reached the king. Edward pretended not to believe in the magnitude of the rebellion, but he adopted active measures to repress it. He soon arrived in the mountains. The autumn had come, the bad weather was beginning, and the English suffered greatly from the inclemency of the climate. A portion of the army who tried to make use of the temporary bridge, uh, uniting the Isle of Anglesey to the mainland, were attacked by the insurgents and completely destroyed. Edward himself was several times obliged to retreat. Llewellyn, emboldened by his success, entrusted David to defend the defiles of the mountains and march to meet the king, who had gathered large forces near Carmarthen. A detachment encountered the Welsh prince in a farm where he had slept, and, without knowing him, an English knight engaged in a combat with him. Llewellyn was killed. The struggle was then carried on between the English and the Welsh who had come to join their, their prince. When the dead were despoiled after the, the battle, Llewellyn was recognized, and his head was sent to Edward in token of victory. David still held his position in the mountains. At length he was betrayed, delivered up to the English, and imprisoned in Durham Castle with his wife and children. In the month of September 1283, the English Parliament condemned him to death as guilty of high treason, while Edward promised a new prince to the country which he had just subdued. Queen Eleanor was at Carnarvon Castle, waiting to be delivered of a child. She gave birth to a son on the 25th of April, 1284. The child was immediately called Edward Prince of Wales, and when he found himself heir presumptive to the throne, by the death of his elder brother Alphonsus, his title became the appanage of the eldest son of the King of England, thus perpetuating the remembrance of the definitive subjection of the Welsh people and the feeble consolation which the conqueror had offered to them. A few years of peace followed the conquest of Wales. The king had been recalled on the continent to serve as an arbitrator on the claims of the houses of France, of Aragon, and of Anjou to the crown of Sicily. His English subjects were clamoring for his return, and they ended by refusing him the necessary subsidies. The king then returned to England, but a great misfortune awaited him. Queen Eleanor died on the 29th of November, 1292. With her disappeared the softening influence which had modified the haughty character and ambitious views of the king. And just at this moment, a great temptation offered itself to him. The king of Scotland, Alexander III, had died in 1286, leaving no other heir than his granddaughter, Margaret, princess of Norway. She was still a child, and her father had kept her for some time past with him. She at length sailed for Scotland in 1290, but she died during the passage, and Scotland became a prey to all the evils of a contested secession. Thirteen noblemen, descendants of members of the royal family, set up claims to the throne simultaneously. But two of them had prospects very much better than those of any of the others. These were John Boyle and Robert Bruce, grandson and son of two elder daughters of David, Earl of Huntingdon. The younger brother of King William the Lion but no one possessed claims sufficiently strong to impress the people in their favor. The Scotch, troubled by the prospect of anarchy without result, 
sent an embassy to King Edward to ask him to act as arbitrator in this serious aspect of affairs and to decide who should be King of Scotland. Edward received the deputation at Norham on the 10th of May, 1291, and from the first declared that, as liege lord of Scotland, he would settle the question of the secession, insisting, first of all, upon the recognition of his rights of superiority by the pretenders. The Scotch people hesitated. They asked for a delay. By St. Edward, from whom I hold my crown, cried the King of England, I will establish my just rights or perish in the attempt and the assembly was adjourned until the 2nd of June following. Edward had convoked all of the barons. On the appointed day, eight claimants had met near Norham, in the plain of Hollywell Haw, on the Scotch territory. When the Chancellor of England asked the pretenders among whom was Robert Bruce, whether they were willing to abide by the decision of Edward, King of England, as liege lord of Scotland, Bruce recognized without hesitation the rights of the powerful monarch who could award the crown to him. His rivals did likewise, and John Beloyal, who arrived on the morrow, was the more willing to compromise the safety of his country as he believed he had secured the favor of Edward. The chancellor had taken care to announce in the name of his master that the right of the king as liege lord, which had just been recognized, in no way affected the titles to property which he might think proper to proclaim valid thereafter. On the 3rd of June, a commission was appointed to examine the rights of the two great pretenders, and the regents of Scotland consigned all the royal castles to Edward, on condition that he should give them up two months after the decision between Bruce and Baloyal. On the 15th of the same month, the pretenders took the oath of allegiance to Edward, as did also a great number of Scotch barons, and peace was proclaimed in his name as liege lord of Scotland. The first step in the path of dependence had been made. The second act of the drama was enacted at Berwick Castle on the 17th of November, 1292. There King Edward, having made a scrutiny of the rights of all the pretenders, and having consulted the Parliament of Scotland at length, declared that the grandson of the elder daughter had a prior claim to that of the son of the younger daughter, thus deciding in favor of Bloyle to the exclusion of Bruce. On the 19th, the governors of the castles received instructions to give up their keys to the new king, and on the morrow Bloyle swore fidelity to Edward at Norham. Having been crowned on the 30th at Scone, he proceeded to England, whether King Edward had been called in consequence of the illness and death of Eleanor of Castile. The new king did homage for the Kingdom of Scotland on the 26th of November at Newcastle. The King of England again reserved his rights of property. While Edward was laboring to subject the Scotch people, King Philip the Fair was secretly plotting with the intention of driving the English from the French soil and depriving them of Aquitaine. An encounter had taken place between the English and Norman sailors on the coast of Guienne. The merchantmen of the two countries, taking sides warmly, had been engaged in several fights with each other. The King of France seized the opportunity, some outrages having been committed on his subjects to summon King Edward to appear at his court as Duke of Aquitaine, in order to answer before his peers for the offenses committed against his liege lord. Edward sent his brother Edmund, who weakly consented to satisfy the feudal honor of King Philip by placing in the hands of the French officers the Duchy of Gascony for a period of forty days. The conditions were agreed to. The question was not one of territorial aggrandizement, but of reparation. The English prince waited for forty days. This period of time having elapsed, he came to claim the restoration of his domains. 
The King of France laughed and declared that the Duke of Aquitaine had forfeited his rights as a vassal by not presenting himself personally before his liege lord. The Grand Constable was at once sent to all the towns and castles belonging to King Edward. A large number of them opened their gates to him. The Duchy of Aquitaine was returning. It was said to the crown. Edward I, however, had commended his preparations for reclaiming his provinces by force of arms. The English ships were about to weigh anchor when a violent insurrection broke out in Wales. The king dispatched a little body of troops into Gascony, sent his fleet to hover around the coasts and seize all the French ships which might come in their way, and dispatched the greater portion of his forces to Wales. In spite of the winter, the snow, the mountains, the impenetrable forest, and the obstinacy of the insurgents, Edward pursued his enemies in all directions and contrived to subdue them. Madoc, the ringleader, laid down his arms. The most intractable chiefs were sentenced to be imprisoned for life, and the king, triumphant, left Wales to embark for France. The Scotch did not allow him time, however, to accomplish his intention. Since Edward had placed the feeble Beloyal upon the throne of Scotland, he had spared him no humiliation. Every time that at a petitioner, dissatisfied with the justice of the king of Scotland, Thought proper to appeal to the liege lord, Edward would summon Beloyal to appear at his court to render an account of his judgment, and this summons was repeated four times during the first year of his reign. At length, in 1293, in the matter of, of a complaint of the Earl of Fief, Beloyal, who was tired of these proceedings, declared that the question concerned his subjects and that he could not reply to the appeal without consulting his people. What, cried Edward, you are my vassal, you have done homage to me, and it is to answer to me for your acts that you are here, Beloyal persisted. The English Parliament condemned his conduct, and King Edward only consented to retard by some months the pronouncing of the sentence. In the interval, the difficulty about Gian occurred, and King Edward, occupied with his struggles against his own liege lord, soon learnt that his vassal, the King of Scotland, led on by the national movement in his country, had contracted with King Philip in an alliance cemented by a promise of marriage between his young son Edward and Jane of Loy, niece of the King of France. A short time before the Parliament of Scotland had decided on sending back all the Englishmen employed at the court and formed a council consisting of four earls, four bishops, and four barons who were entrusted with the management of the affairs of the kingdom. Beloyal was held by his subjects in a kind of captivity. The suspicions which King Edward had conceived and which had kept him in England while he sent his brother into Guyenne, were soon justified. The Scotch invaded the country of Cumberland with a large army, but were easily repulsed. Edward soon advanced towards the frontier, marching first of all against Berwick. He attacked the town by land and sea, and all resistance was useless. The king mounted upon his horse Bayard, was the first to spring across the dike which protected the town. A fearful massacre took place. Neither age nor sex excited any pity. It was on the 30th of March, 1296, on the 5th of April, the abbot of Arbroath presented himself at the English camp. He brought Beloyal's renunciation of all homage towards the king of England. Edward had a short time before addressed a similar communication to Philip, king of France, but this coincidence did not appease his anger. Ah, then the scoundrel has dared to defy me, he cried. If he will not come to us, we will go to them and he marched forward, taking possession on his way of the castles which resisted him.
Dunbar, Roxboro, Dunbarton, Jedboro, Edinburgh, Sterling had already fallen into Edward's hands. When a fresh message from Beloil was brought to him, he humbly begged for peace. The king did not do his revolted vassal the honor of treating him as a sovereign and of negotiating personally with him. He ordered Beloil to proceed to the castle of Brayshin, to which place he dispatched the bishop of Durham. A few days later, on the 7th of June, 1296, Beloil, deprived of all his regal insignia, with a white rod in his hand, presented himself at the cemetery of Strathcarthroe in the county of Angus, acknowledging that he had violated all his obligations towards his liege lord, who had very justly invaded his fief. After this act of self-abasement and renunciation, tired, he said, of the malice and ingratitude of men, he was sent to the tower in honorable captivity, and subsequently ended his life in his domains of Normandy, forgotten or despised by all. Robert Bruce at once claimed the crown. Do you think that I have nothing else to do but to conquer kingdoms for you? King Edward harshly replied. And he marched towards the north, receiving everywhere the homage of the Scotch nobility. He had convened a parliament at Berwick. He proceeded there on the 28th of August in order to arrange the government of his new acquisition. He displayed on this occasion great prudence and moderation. He returned to the church all property which had been confiscated from it and left the interior offices in the hands of the functionaries who occupied them. But the guardianship of the castles was confided to the English. Warren, Earl of Surrey, was nominated governor. Hugh de Cressingham, treasurer, and William Ormesby, chief justiciar. Scotland was treated as a conquered country. King Edward now thought himself at leisure to devote his attention to his affairs in France and to prepare to cross the Channel. The allies of England upon the continent were in urgent need of his help. The Earl of Barr, the son-in-law of Edward, had been defeated and made a prisoner in an attempt to, against Champagne, and his wife, being unable to regain her liberty, had died of grief. Guy, Count of Flanders, had been attracted to Paris under false pretenses. Together with his wife and his daughter Philippa, who had been affianced to Prince Edward of England, all three had been thrown into prison, and although the Count proceeded in buying his freedom, he had been compelled to leave his daughter in the hands of Philip the Fair, who denied the right of vassals to give their daughters in marriage without the authority of their lord. King Edward would have great difficulty in helping his foreign allies, for he was engaged in a struggle against his English subjects. The conquest of the countries of Wales and Scotland had required great efforts, and the nation had borne its heavy burdens without murmuring. In 1295, however, on a demand of the king, who required one half of their revenues, the clergy appealed to Pope Boniface VIII, who issued a bull in their favor, but the ecclesiastical thunders had begun to lose their terrors. Edward had seized upon the property of the clergy, and the bishops ended by giving in. The merchants and citizens were more obstinate than the priests, and when the king, in 1297, conceived the idea of imposing an enormous tax upon every bale of wool, making at the same time large requisitions for grain, the complaints became loud. From remonstrance, the people had arrived at overt resistance. When the king seized at all the ports, the wool and skins intended for exportation and sold them for his own benefit. The merchants met together, protested against this evil toll, as they called it, and declared that the Magna Charta ordered that the English people were not to be taxed without their own consent. 
A certain number of powerful noblemen supported the citizens in this movement. King Edward had raised two armies. One was to march to Guyenne, and the other to Flanders to help the Count Guy, who was anxious to avenge his injuries on King Philippe. Edmund, King Edward's brother, had died in Guyenne. The king himself reckoned upon commanding the expedition in Flanders. He summoned to Salisbury Humphrey Bowen, Earl of Airford and Constable of England, and Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, Field Marshal, to entrust to them the command of the army of Guyenne. Both replied that their offices compelled them to remain near the king's person during the war, and that they would not proceed to Guyenne without him. "'By the Lord God Almighty, my Lord Earl,' cried Edward, addressing himself to by God, "'you shall go, or you shall be hanged. "'By the Lord God Almighty, Sire King,' replied the proud baron, "'calmly I shall not go, neither shall I be hanged,' and both retired to their estates, immediately followed by thirty bannerets and by fifteen hundred knights, who everywhere created an opposition to the levying of the taxes. The king was in an awkward position— he convoked in London a popular assembly, having taken care, first of all, to become reconciled with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Winchelsea, who had been the prime mover in the resistance of the clergy, and had found himself deprived of all his revenues in consequence, then accompanied by the prelate, the Earl of Warwick, and Prince Edward. The king appealed directly to the people, assuring them that nothing was more disagreeable to him than to impose heavy burdens upon his well-beloved subjects. But that had been compelled to do so in order to defend them against the Scotch, the Welsh, and the French. I am now going to expose myself for you to the risks of war, said he. If I return alive, I will repay you for everything. If I should die, there is my son. Place him upon the throne, and his gratitude will reward you fidelity. The king was weeping, and all those who were present were profoundly touched. Prince Edward was declared regent amid public acclamation, the Archbishop of Canterbury was nominated as his advisor, and the king marched towards the coast. He had only arrived at Winchester when he was stopped on the 12th of August by a remonstrance from the prelates, the earls, the barons, and the commoners of England, declaring that they were not obliged to accompany him into Flanders, their ancestors not having served the kings of England in that country, and they added that, even were they so disposed, the poverty to which they had been reduced did not allow them to do so. The king, they said, had already violated on several occasions the charters, which he had solemnly ratified his evil toll was intolerable, and his absence was about to leave the country a prey to the invasions of the Scotch and the Welsh. The king made an evasive reply to this declaration, reckoning upon the affection of the common people, he made sail with the troops who remained with him, and disembarked at Sluys towards the end of August. End of chapter 10, part 1. Recording done by Voice of Landis, Zanesville, Ohio. You can find me at voiceoflandis.com.